In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. Sometimes in religion, the distinction between faith and culture is not always clear. Often that which is held up as essential or important in Christian faith really turns out to be more of a cultural norm or a social bias. When faith is being negotiated and reconsidered, a kind of, wait a minute, they told me that this was the way to think or that this was what I had to believe on a social issue. And then you begin to see maybe it's not that way after all. This can happen in issues, political, moral we need good and thoughtful guides through these considerations. We can't just take things for granted. And today we're joined by such a guide. Dr. Matthew Guest is professor in sociology and, of, and religion, uh, sorry, professor in sociology of religion and head of department in the Department of Theology and Religion at Durham University in the UK. He's been based in Durham since 2001, researching and teaching in the sociology of religion. He studied at the University of Nottingham, and he studied there religious studies, followed up by a PhD in sociology at the University of Lancaster. Uh, he's studied how institutional forces that f frame religious identity, how those are perpetuated, sustained, uh, and, su and subverted within Western capitalist societies. We're talking to Dr. Guest now because we've read his book, Neoliberal Religion, Faith and Power in the 21st Century. And this book, for in my thinking, does the kind of thing that I just spoke about so well. Mm -hmm. Identifies really, really important things and shows a little bit of like, well, this has been taken to be part of faith, but it might really not be. So, uh, Dr. Guest, thank you so much yes, for joining us. Uh, Allison's here as yep. well. And Amanda is kind of on the mic. You can jump in if you need to, if we say anything really I sure objectionable, can. objectionable. But thank you, Dr. Guest, for joining us. And, and uh, so why don't we just start with that. Tell us about the book, the title, what it means, and what it is that you're aiming to address in the work. Okay, well, well, well. Firstly, thanks for for inviting me. It's it's great to be here and and to have a chance to talk through um, the ideas surrounding this book that that's really got me excited over the last few years. Um, I'd read a, a bunch of stuff um, a few years ago on the relationship between um, what has been called neoliberalism and religion, uh, but it hadn't really taken the argument as far as I'd like. And I thought, hmm. I need to really delve into this with greater depth and really try and think it through. Um, and what got me really inspired is I went to this event and uh, a few years ago, and it was um, it's called the Global Leadership Summit. You may have oh, heard of That's the Bill Hybels thing, the Willow Creek thing? Exactly. So, Bill were, oh so this was in the United States? No, this was in the UK. Oh, okay. 
what the Global Leadership Summit, for those of you who don't know, um, is a conference for leadership training that Willow Creek put on. Um, and people from across the U.S. go to Chicago for this particular event and learn about what it is to be a leader. And of course, most of them are church leaders, but the speakers are, that are invited to this are um, from all sorts of walks of life. So they get speakers from business, speakers from the charitable sector, speakers from from um, art and music, uh, uh, and speakers from religious organizations. The principal assumption being that all the skills that good leaders have are transferable across those spheres. So if you want to be a good leader in your local church, you can learn a lot from the guy who's run his own company and has, has made his millions. So that really intrigued me. But what intrigued me more was the fact that the Global Leadership Summit became a franchise product Mm. that was then sent around the world. Um, So the Global Leadership Summit um, effectively became a package of resources that churches across the world could could buy and use in their own local local environment. You know, the, 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 the talks get get packaged up as a DVD and you project wow. on the screen in the church, you get workbooks to fill in. There are a bunch of uh, books you can sell on the book sale. They're all about leadership and power and, and all that kind of stuff. And um, so it becomes its own localized version of Willow Creek's leadership that's model. Am- that's amazing. And there were huge, you know, ask there the were good Lord names. intended that you franchise your leadership Well, <laughs> there, were, there were big names at these events too, right? Like we're talking, yeah. Bono yeah. was interviewed. I think Bill Bono Clinton was interviewed. Was interviewed. Yeah. They had, like, these are world leaders is kind of the idea too, right? Yeah, and, and also people who were, um, I mean, they had people kind of Harvard professors of business mm. and they had people who'd really made it in the, uh, kind of charitable sector who were you know driving forward uh, initiatives in the third world and so they weren't all necessarily hyper pro capitalist individuals right, right but some of them were and um the the idea was that you could learn a great deal from these people and that you could apply that in your own church the message being one of pragmatism empowerment um uh entrepreneurialism Mm -hmm. and this becomes the model that you use when you try and make Mm -hmm. your church into something that looks a bit like one of these thriving Mm -hmm. companies um and so i went to a couple of these events in the uk and chatted to people there and talked to them about you know what was going on and i just found it fascinating the way in which this model of leadership had been kind of conceived in a way that very much mirrors the business world the Mm -hmm. global business world and you look at the, the 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 uh uh, the promotional material for the Global Leadership Summit. It's it's like Davos, you know, it's that it's that kind of, oh, sort totally. of economic forum yeah. stuff, you know. Um and it's the, the religious imagery is very played down on, on the um on the on the promotional material. Uh it's all about leadership, power. Um but I was fascinated by the way in which that model was then translated into something that you could package as a product so it becomes a commodity and then you use a franchise model to to channel that into a global network of churches so to me it just encapsulated the way in which ideas of church vitality and growth had been um kind of translated into a program of change that resembled one of business growth Mm-hmm. And um, the methods were similar, the ideas were similar, the kind of 
that the image of success was similar. I mean, I chatted to this one guy who was a church involved in church leadership in the UK, and I, he was involved in bringing all that stuff over here. And I said, "Well, what's it all about? Why, why, why would you, why would you be so enthusiastic about this?" And he said, "Well, it's like we, we've got a lot to learn from the US, you know, because there the oh. the attitude is you can do. The attitude is, you know, you've got you you don't think in defeatist terms. Right. You just think in an entrepreneurial way and think, well, what's the best way to practically get around this problem? And if you've got the right people, you can get the right result. And it was it was a really profoundly kind of entrepreneurial business model for how you do church." And I mean, whether it translates to different cultural environments is is, is a complicated question. Sure. But it got me thinking about the practical ways in which Christianity and eventually other forms of religion might be borrowing from the world of business and commerce and and, and commercial endeavour in order to advance itself in the contemporary twenty first century context. And that's what led me to write the book. It's. Uh... I'm thinking back to I'm thinking of you being at these events, and mm. I get, you know I see everything through kind of self-centered lens and stuff, and being a prof- you being a professor, you look I mean you bring this kind of place of evaluation to it, right? I, did you experience that as kind of upsetting? But I'm sure not only upsetting, right? There's a bit Curiosity. of there's there's pros and cons in how you're reacting to mm-hmm. what you're witnessing. I wasn't upset. I was fascinated. I mean, okay. I, I'm, I've always been um, uh, a sociologist of religion. So my my, my primary um, interest is being to try and understand the practical realities of religious life. Mm-hmm. Um, and and from very early on, I recognised that the practical realities of religious life are often a lot messier, mm-hmm. a lot more mm-hmm. compromised, a lot. Um, a lot quirkier, a lot more diverse than 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 textual images of religion mm. often allow for, uh, and that's just human reality. So I mean, that's okay. Um, I, I'm not upset by that. I'm fascinated by yeah. the patterns that it follows, um, and the way in which certain ideas of cultural engagement become normalised. So that's the great thing that yeah. not just that these. The fascinating thing is not just that these um, things happen, but they become. Um, they become part of normal Christian life or normal Muslim life or whatever, that they mm-hmm. they become mm-hmm. part of the just general everyday way you do things. You know, they become habituated. And then, um, then you start to think, well, actually, that just illustrates how profoundly cultural right. all religious practice is, you know, yeah. because it's a mirror of its environment. It takes on aspects, the broader cultural values and, and, and framework, and as a consequence, it, it's subject to change, even when those who advance this are often also very keen to establish that uh, it hasn't changed at all. It's uh, just faithful to something I, that's I, true. Yeah. I'm assuming the Global Leadership Conference, is that what it was called? Summit. Uh, Global Summit. Leadership Summit, even better yeah, than conference, no. <laughs> uh, is not happening anymore, right? Given what's happened with Bruce, or Bruce, with Bill, Bill Hybels. Do they still mm. run these or no? No, I think it's still running. Still yeah. going? Okay. It wouldn't I don't think he's... I don't think he's at the top anymore, but you know, it's still it has a brand of its own. I was gonna say it's yeah. it's created a commodity. I, I I think this is interesting. So, so your your book uh, is now a result of you looking into this fascination and kind of trying to to delve into it a little bit here. Um, 
I'd love if you could, if you could tell us kind of like why you think this is particularly important at this moment. And I think just, just for, you know, a, a nice, you know, reference thing, um, neoliberal, if maybe you could just start with, with a definition of that, because in, in at least North America, it, it triggers, uh, a, like, like political? A, an incorrect assumption of definition. Yeah, okay. Like you, you assume you hear the word liberal in it at all and you go, Oh, liberal for like progressive. Um, but yeah. so I think maybe if we start with like that, <laughs> like a definition of that term and then tell us kind of like why, like why your book matters at this moment. Sure. Sure. So the term neoliberal is associated with a particular approach to economics. Um, it has its origins in the thinking of a guy called Friedrich Hayek, mm -hmm. who was like an Austrian um, guy who lived earlier in the 20th century. But it became much more influential in the 1970s, following its adoption by Milton Friedman, the uh, American economist. Um, but the reason that it's interesting to me is because the assumptions in neoliberalism have become um, standardized as cultural assumptions in the in, in the subsequent decades. So what are those assumptions? The assumptions are, and I've tried to break them down to three key points in the book. Um, one is a heightened individualism. Mm. In other words, the most important um, um, aspect of human experience is the individual decision maker, right? So that's a kind of continuation of the kind of postmodern um, developments that we might be familiar with from decades before. So the, the way in which it's the individual, the empowered individual, who is most important, the freedom of the individual, the freedom of the individual consumer. The second assumption is what you might summarize as marketization. So this is the idea that um, not only do lots of human um phenomena function like markets but they function most efficiently when they're treated like markets mm. so in other words competition is the best gauge of value in all the way cases. you figure out <laughs> yeah in all things whatever you feel when you figure how to figure out the the most um worthy contender in something or the most the best version of something you put things into competition mm. and you see which one wins and that logic has been something that's you, we we know about it because we're we're familiar with kind of free market economics where uh, you have that kind of logic involved in how businesses thrive. But we now see it in um, education, we see it in healthcare, we see it in the way in which governments work. We see uh, a kind of an elevation of competition mm -hmm. as the eminent way of uh, ascertaining what is most desirable and most high quality. And the third assumption is um, treating um, many different aspects of life as commodities. Um, so rather than um, approach um, life in terms of relationships or in terms of tradition, um, you treat in terms of the exchange of different products or commodities that can be purchased and sold. Yeah. And this is to me that the, the, these are the sort of the three elements of neoliberal economic thinking 
that are translated most readily into cultural everyday life. And we see them all over the place. You look around us and we find elements of neoliberal assumptions that that are dictating how cultural reality is, is defined. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah no. And there's part where as, as you're listing this, like, yeah, there, there's part where I go, yeah, I think I have some at least of those like basic presumptions of this is how things work or this is how things should work. Or if I feel uncomfortable with them, I'm like, is that like, am I pushing against what the norm is? And I definitely have suspicions of how this applies to the church. It's uh, (laughs) like, I'm like, Oh my goodness. Yes. No, I, I, I see exactly what you've got there. And it's why, you know, I think you're such a helpful guide for, for us Mm -hmm. to consider what are the things we take for granted that are just assumed to be part of faith or part of you know yeah. the way of seeing the world? You would be familiar, a, a book that comes up often in conversation with guests, um, particularly university type guests and professors and others, is Charles Taylor's Taylor's Secular Age, age right? So this question mm-hmm. that he's asking in 980 pages or whatever it is, succinct right? man. that you have, you know, why over a 500 year span? So in 1500, the kind of dominant assumption was God. You make sense of the world by God. You have these construals. So if there's mm-hmm. a if there's a disaster, I was going to say natural disaster, but you know you you ascribe that to God. If there's, and then over this relatively short period of time, that's not the way it is anymore. That breaks down. So he outlines a secular age. I, I'm not telling you Matthew anything you don't know, <laughs> but the idea there is that and you use the, this word in in your writing in the book hegemony, like that which has kind of a hegemonic definition that explains everything. What you've just outlined is that where it used to be God, now it's economics. Is that fair to say? That there is this um, hegemonic reality think, is... Yeah. I, I suppose what... I think that's true to a degree. I, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say I think one is a natural replacement for the other. Hmm. Um, I think um, any expression of religion or faith is caught up in its cultural environment. And at one point in time we may have been primarily thinking of God, for example, in terms of monarchy, in terms of majesty, in terms of preeminence, in terms of power. Um, And that gets translated into way in which religion gets Mm -hmm. lived. I think what we have in the neoliberal age is a a set of assumptions that finds its way into... um, the way in which religion is practiced, mm-hmm. and in some respects, yes, the way in which God or the idea of God is conceived. Um, I mean, there are there are theological um, writers who draw a direct comparison between the free flow of capital in a capitalist mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. and the free movement of God. Yeah. Mm. There, there, there are there are parallels drawn that are that are that. Um, striking between the economic functioning of a market mm-hmm. and the supernatural functioning of a god. I love how you outline that and the distinction between that it's not that one necessarily replaces the other, you mm-hmm. know, it, but that but it how we think of God, yeah. concepts of God are so impacted by this, this kind of global thing, the economics that has precedence over so many things and we don't often think through those one of the reasons i like that distinction as you outline it here or the kind of uh, correction is that in my thinking it, it helps to to not set up that us and them you know a religious secular type of thing that can happen or sacred secular thing rather than like as you think of god 
realize that the way in which you think of God has been impacted by these ways of seeing the world. That is so really, really good. There are a number of key concepts. You mentioned some of them in the book that you outline um, in that way of thinking. These include marketization, populism, post-truth thinking, and securitization. Um, If it's okay, I'd like to kind of delve a little bit deeper into each of those because I think it'll help people. So marketization would be first. Briefly define what you mean by marketization and some of the ways that it impacts church and religion. Okay, so, I mean, this this is one of the terms in the book that has the longest provenance. So there's been lots of um, there's been lots of scholarship on um, market thinking and how it impacts on how religion is is expressed over the last forty years or so. And there's there's there are some thinkers who would say um, religion essentially functions like a market. You know? So the religions that are most successful are those that um, attract most successfully mm. the most people. And um, because that's what happens, we can treat religions as competitors in a religious marketplace. Now, I don't go down that road. I don't think that's Mm -hmm. a defensible argument. I think it's Mm -hmm. far more complicated than that. But what I do say is that the idea of living life in market terms has become important to how religions are uh, lived out. And also the assumptions of marketization being a good thing for success uh, yeah. has been internalized into religious living. No, I, I mean, I think that that's, that's interesting because, yeah, you do go, are we successful as a church or whatever? And, and a thriving church. Yeah, yeah. And, and I go, so <laughs> yeah. what are those measures of success? Like what, what are you using to define success? And I think a lot of times, yeah, it comes down to the same things that are judged in, in a business sort of concept that you go growth. Uh, either in like attraction of attendance or commitment or money um, mm-hmm. as well as like cultural relevance and those sorts of things like branding. And I, I see some parallels there. I mean, there, there are some aspects that I would imagine most religious um, institutions have to take a level of consideration of how they may in ways function as a business. Like there's, there's some realities of like making sure you're, you know, staying on side with your government Mm -hmm. as far as like charity and all those sorts of things and managing of funds. And, but it does seem like there, there are churches who understand themselves like key, like their key definition is like, well, we're essentially a business and they, Mm -hmm. and they run like that. Is that kind of where you're starting to point to? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, on one level, it's about, um, and and it's not incidental that some of the churches that are most, um, uh, exhibit most of those characteristics are independent evangelical churches. Mm -hmm. So these are churches who need to, um, you know, they need to wash their own face, so to speak, in terms of their their upkeep, you know, Mm -hmm. they need to, sustain their own buildings they need to pay their own pastors they don't exist in a broader network as such Uh, and so the idea of having an established um infrastructure um buildings equipment services that are financially viable Mm -hmm. makes more sense because if you can do that you can do the stuff you want to do anyway which is hold services on a sunday and do various forms of outreach etc etc so it makes more sense for it to happen in those contexts. I think what's more interesting is the ways in which 
visible markers of success migrate from the mm. private entrepreneurial business world into the mm. church world so that when you say okay what does what does a, a great church look like or what does a successful church look yeah. like mm-hmm. you think actually it looks a bit like that thing over there which is borrowing heavily from the entertainment world yeah. or from the business world or um and that's fascinating and i think those churches where you see um elements of uh vitality that you'd more commonly associate with say television advertising right. or with the hollywood movie business right. or with um particular kinds of celebrity culture yeah. mm-hmm. then it starts to think well actually there's there's something very particular going on here and there's certain kinds of values and ideas that are being foregrounded much more than others this section on marketization is also the section where you I'm, i know it probably happens in other sections as well but most explicitly bring out the concept of personal faith in, mm. in the marketization section that one of the impacts is is that that is elevated that faith is this personal or individual thing what what's some of the connection there i think a key concept in that is choice mm. so um we've what one of the reasons there's, there's a great argument from the the sociologist peter berger who who says that you know protestantism contributed to its its own downfall by foregrounding choice hmm. you know because religion ceased to be something that was taken for granted in the broader mm-hmm. sphere of life and instead became something you opted into something that you elected to be a member of which of course as soon as it becomes a choice there's a choice not to do it right um, but one extension of that argument is to mm-hmm. say um choice becomes about a kind of consumer choice yeah so you make your decision about your religious identity by choosing from uh, a selection of opportunities or options that are available in your in- environment um so it becomes something much more self-conscious much more deliberate mm-hmm. uh much more precarious in a way because you can change your mind you know it's something that you can say well at the moment this works for me but next month there might be something else so it raises interesting questions about commitment and dedication longevity mm-hmm. um because if the model of faith is one that resembles consumer choice then it's not something that's terribly dependable um mm. it could be something that could shift very easily something that can change with life circumstances very easily something that does not necessarily um foster loyalty mm. or community even that's interesting so, yeah that's mm. very yeah i think that's very interesting i mean i what i'm what i'm hearing from you is 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 description not necessarily that you're um, making value statements on that this is entirely bad or entirely good. I can imagine that there are ways in which people now have options to opt out of things that don't feel healthy for them or mm-hmm. are, you know, supportive of um, positions that that they see as damaging. And like, I, I feel like there are some positive aspects to it, but I'm curious as to, for an institution like the church, um, that kind of depends on some of those commitment things. If this marketization has made that more difficult, have you seen ways in which the church has tried to 
uh, I mean, I wouldn't wish to insinuate necessarily like intention, but like exert force to try to make increased commitment in other ways if they can't now rely on people just coming in yeah, automatically. Yeah, by birth or something. Like, is, are there ways that you've seen the church um, try to compensate for no longer being able to just by default have people? Well, I think one 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 really interesting pattern is that the churches that tend to be most profoundly shaped along those lines are also often the churches that make a huge amount of um, a huge amount of their resources to foster um, a community. Mm. So the logic of the market and of choice pushes against it. But the way in which churches like Hillsong and its various imitators across the world appeal is by saying to individuals, we will provide you with a community with which you can identify. So in that sense, if we talk about brand loyalty, Mm -hmm. to use a consumer term, Mm -hmm. you might might find that the same logic elicits a kind of um, cultural affinity amongst people that um, compensates for mm-hmm. that sort of fragmentation that you might find in a more individualistic uh, ethos. Um, now, whether churches like that are effective at fostering community, I think it depends what kind of community you want. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's quite interesting about those churches, they do tend to be um, socially segmented, should we mm. say. Uh, they, they tend to appeal to particular demographic cohorts. Hmm. And that's not surprising. I mean, the one of the, the, the key influential figures over the development of um, seeker churches, if you like, was Donald McGavran, who pioneered the church growth movement. Hmm. You know, the, the key principle of which was, and this is the, the homogeneous unit principle, you know, you, you, your success as a church depends on you identifying your market segment and appealing as best as you can to the needs of that particular group. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that might make sense in terms of business marketing. Yeah. What it does, though, is says this community is deliberately going to appeal to this group over here, but Not it might be yeah. alienating to everybody else. Yeah. Um, so um, there's there's a cost that comes with doing things in that way. That's uh, yeah. It's, uh, I, I, I mean, reading the book, Marketization, so for those who read it and really recommend doing so, um, it sets up everything else so well. I mean, I'm, I don't know how you made your decisions in writing this, but as a, as a reader, uh, that first concept helps to expand the other ones that, that help us to see these things. The, the second concept that you work through is that, of populism, which mm. has been, in my understanding, and many people, many people understanding, more of a word of politics. Um, mm. You take us then in the book on a bit of a geographical tour in that section. <laughs> you go to a bunch of different countries and say, "Here's mm. populism here. Here's populism in this place." I think landing um, for an extensive period of time then in, in the book in the United States, which makes good sense uh, given yeah. the last number of years. So what is populism and how is populism impacting kind of religious understanding at this point in history? So populism is um, a form of political 
identity that rests on um, an idea of the people. Mm -hmm. um, so, but rather than so, democracy. You know, democracy is power of the people um, through usually through um, suffrage, so voting. What populism does is bypass that structural condition and say, you know, we're appealing to the real people and recognizing what the real people really want. So populism rests on an idea of direct appeal to the ordinary folks and what they prioritize. Now, it's a kind of rhetoric that characterizes that. It's, it's, it's a way of speaking about life, because, of course, many of those politicians who are known to be or known as populist are often um, not very interested in elections, not especially interested in being faithful to the voice of the people as we might measure it in social scientific terms. They claim to have almost a uh, intuitive identification with the people. They know the people. They might claim to be one of the people, um, even if they are members of the of the elite. And we, we find populism um, has resurged over recent yeah. decades so that there are pockets of of this kind of uh, politics in Turkey and Hungary, various other parts of Europe, South America, and of course in the United States, principally through the support base that led to the rise of Donald Trump yeah. and um, all of that kind of Christian nationalism that emerged yeah. from there. Now, what characterizes populism is not just this appeal to the so-called people, but um, an assumption that um, there is a corrupt elite that is getting in the way of us understanding what the people want. Mm -hmm. Now, the corrupt elite in various forms of populism might be the media, it might be uh, the liberal intelligentsia, it might be universities, it might be the political establishment, um, it might be the business world. Um, the, the point is there is something out there stopping us from getting justice for the real people, uh, and they're not to be trusted. So populist claims about um, representing the people are often accompanied by a profound scepticism towards the claims made by people who are members of the elite. Um, and so you have this kind of populism that is um, often structured around charismatic individuals, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, often um, advocates social change, um, profound scepticism with the political elite that they're already established, um, and a desire to um, set in place a fairly authoritarian rule. Mm. Um, populism isn't exclusively of the right. It can be of the left as well, but the vast majority of cases that I'm really interested in yeah. in the book are right-wing forms of populism. And the reason for that is that they're the ones that are most closely aligned with religious identities and concerns. So populism in Turkey um, under the current regime is, 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 is strongly associated with a particular expression of Islam. Um, populism in the US is strongly associated with Christian nationalism. Um, even in parts of Europe where populism is more secular, it's often... Mm -hmm form of secularism defined over and against religious identities. So some of the more right-wing populists in, say, France or in the Netherlands define themselves as 
European citizens opposed right. to the influence of Islam. Right. Uh, and that's so, why so religion like a, cr- a Christian religion. nation idea, even even in a more secular understanding. Sure. Like this, this idea, like we get back to, you, you say populism also trades a lot in nostalgia, right? That there is yeah, this oh, kind absolutely. Of oh, absolutely. Oh, hearkening back to the good old Do days. Do you think that, um, I think it might be my bias that I, that I feel this sometimes, but as you describe this and then as I watch things, so whether it's Brexit in the UK, right? Mm. where yeah. And then the Trump phenomenon in the United States and Hungary with Orban and the, there's so, so much is connected to this nostalgic kind of like, when we when we used to be believers and there was this kind of e- even if we don't believe well, now but we're and I think a feeling of a feeling disenfranchised yeah and and the bias yeah. that I think I one of the ways that my bias sometimes shows is I watch this and I think those leaders those authoritarian leaders to me appear to have almost a disdain for their followers mm-hmm. um, that. It, are they using their followers or do some of the, I mean, now I'm asking you a question that is not really <laughs> academic, but are they just using their followers in this way for power or are there populist leaders who actually think these things and are trying to do this? Or is it, or is it kind of a cynical grab for power? That's a really interesting question. I mean, one of the things that, and I don't know the answer, but the, yeah. one of the interesting uh, ideas that I try and wrestle with in that chapter of the book is what I call strategic authority. So, so the willingness to um, leverage advantage mm. um, in a cynical, deliberate, um, strategic way in order to advance power. Yeah. Um, and one of the ways in which I try and link populism with neoliberalism is to say, well, you know, business people do this all the time. And it's kind of part of a, well, perhaps a stereotypical but not baseless model of entrepreneurial capitalism is that um, not necessarily anything goes, but more or less. Mm. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with um, being uh, economical with the truth, being um, manipulative in your relationships in order if, if, if it serves the profit motive. Yeah, um, like you and can I justify whether, the means to the end. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And I wonder whether that kind of thinking has migrated into forms mm. of politics as well as religion so that you have people who will say, well, you know, maybe we're not as truthful as we ought to be, but our goals right. are important enough to, 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 to justify that, you know. That's that's well said. That uh, so the next the next main concept. Um, there's so much we can talk about I with know. populism because it's just. Um, well, you mentioned. I think it's in that. Is it in that section? So before we go to the thir- the third thing, um, deploying Christianity instrumentally, that yeah, Christianity yeah. itself becomes used for these things. Um, expand that a little bit for us. I mean, you have a, somewhat already, but. Yeah, I mean, the I suppose the most profound. Profoundly striking example of that is with Trump, who 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 showed very little interest in Christianity before he was seeking power. Um, I mean, he's supposed to have been a regular at the uh, um, the Church of um, Norm, uh, Norm Vincent. Oh Pale. yeah, yeah, he was. A, yeah, his family were kind of disciples of that movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah who I mean, he, Peel himself was 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 a great kind yeah. of. Um, advocate for sort of very sort of pro-capitalist entrepreneurialism and so it's not incidental 
Um, but but Trump was certainly not uh, a darling of the Christian right. No. Um, or he was seeking power. <laughs> but, you know, he was willing to make the right noises and to hang out with the right people. Um, and they were willing to kind of, as some have put it, hold their noses while they vote for him because he was seen as an instrumental means mm. to advancing an agenda, even if he didn't embody the values that they, they stood for. Um, and to me, there's kind of a... There seems to be a sort of cynical trade-off going on there mm. amongst both parties. So that, they use him instrumentally, and he uses them instrumentally. I think so. Yeah, that's uh, well. The next, the next one you mentioned is post-truth thinking. Um, this is something that has been spoken about for a number. I think back to Stephen Colbert. Right? How many years ago was that that he said truthiness was the word of the year or something? <laughs> um, that's some time ago now, right? That like truth yeah. is. There is no such thing, really. Or, um, so tell us about post-truth thinking and its impact in interplay. Well, there's, I mean, in some respects, this has been around some years because, um, I mean, at least since the, I guess you could say since the years in the period after the Second World War, and then with the growth of television, and, you know, you have this emerging sense in which there are, things going on that suggest the powers that be are hiding things from us and that the real explanation is something else. Mm. Um, conspiracy theories, the X-Files, all that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, but in recent years, that seems to have escalated considerably. And it's it's escalated uh, principally through the, um, the activities of, of powerful politicians who and other public figures who have disregarded what we might previously have thought to be fairly unassailable traditions or truths or claims of knowledge. Uh, and, um, and and again, Trump was, 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 a, was a, yeah. a fascinating example of that. I mean, the, 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 the images of the, um, the inauguration. Oh, yeah. Uh, Day one, with, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> astonishing you know to look at one and look at the other and say it's like calling black white and white black i mean it was it was it was that that strident that 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 stark um but in advocating that way of thinking in being brazen enough to challenge what the rest of us thought was patently true um he then legitimizes that way of speaking and, and thinking uh and reinforces a kind of conspiracy theory approach to um, public life, which effectively discredits inconvenient truth. So yeah. stuff doesn't fit with my pre-existing worldview. I just don't bother engaging with it because can't be trusted anyway. Um, so the whole post-truth phenomenon, to me, normalizes that way of looking at the world and therefore enables much more... Um, esoteric mm -hmm. or uh, unusual claims to have legitimacy in the eyes of the public. Um, and social media and, and, and the way in which digital technology create new platforms for speech enables that as well. I mean, the, there's, there's, the, the two emerge in parallel, I think. When you speak about this concept, like post-truth thinking, in, in my, it resonates to me as kind of, the most dangerous like there's such danger well, in i just well, i don't know how you function as it's a like society any, when it feels like 
there there now no longer are are kind of pre agreed upon rules. Mm, <laughs> like those yeah. don't feel like they exist and like that that kind of is a little concerning to me. Or um, those examples when when something happens, like there's some fact, some event, some incident, and then you you realize that there's some voice of authority, political or media, news, whatever, saying saying the opposite from mm. taking that same information and saying this means the opposite. And and you're just like, oh no, that when that tendency happens then with church leaders and stuff, you right? It just it just is off the chart. This is the same section. I was interested in this given some of my background. Um, a church that I was a pastor at for a number of years had a Plymouth Brethren heritage. And it's in this mm. section, post-truth thinking, that you actually mention uh, what you call world-rejecting sects, like the, the various religious groups or communities that have this rejection of the world as such a primary part of their identity. Tell us why that particular concept fits into this post-truth thinking. Yeah, I think so, because um, really the history of, of sort of Christian sectarianism is, is you can trace it in terms of various different patterns. One of the primary ones being um, what you might call world rejection. So the idea that in order to live a properly faithful Christian life, you need to reject the ways of the world, and in a way, the history of Christianity can be can be can be mm-hmm. traced in terms of the different ways in which that idea, yeah. that injunction, has been interpreted. Whether that's about rejecting technology, or rejecting the corruption of government, or um, completely separating oneself from normal mainstream society. Right. Yeah. Uh, different groups have interpreted that in different ways and they've justified it in different ways um, and developed their own moralities in light of that. Um, and it seemed to me that, a, that that kind of logic was making its way yeah. um, into a broader sphere um, as a means of kind of justifying the privileging of certain kinds of knowledge over others. Um, you could see in... Um, the history of, of 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 certain kinds of of religion, you find it a, a lot in the um, what was the name of that book? The late great planet Earth. Oh, Hal Lindsey. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah the rapture sort of, stuff. The end times. Exactly. Kind of, yeah. that, that sense in which there's a Christian injunction to reject whole streams of knowledge because it's not of not of the of the faith it's or it's not biblical and you find the same with creationism you know yeah. that, that that idea that you can dismiss whole bodies of knowledge right. on the grounds that by definition because it's not of the bible then therefore it must be not just untrue but you know probably dangerous as well and that way in which you can sort of divide up the world in terms of the uh, of the true and the false, of the of the dark and the light, and um, and the, you know that kind of dualistic imagery is is, is drawn on um, uh, in in Christian history repeatedly. Um, but there seems to be a way in which the post truth era can be um, a very uh, fertile context in which groups that think that way might gain more momentum. I, I just love that you have that concept in this section because being part of religious communities for years or churches and. It, it's particularly from the evangelical angle. Um, it's it's a, often a weapon from that stance to say, "Oh, the rest of the world has given up on truth." Like mm. we're the so they identify post truth as everybody else. So you helpfully here help us see. Wait a minute, you might have been part of a group like one of these world reject 
sex in a way, or that's part of part of the kind of identity of your religious understanding. It's that that leads to this kind of post-truth way of thinking, because you just you question everything that, or you say you know, all of those people have given up on truth. We have the truth, right? Which is also what actually opens you up to the post-truth stuff. That's also where you have the concept elastic orthodoxy, how it kind of how you know the way of believing things switches and we just keep changing this and but so there's tons in that section that is fantastic the last thing that we want to talk about we don't have that much more time left is um and i love this section because this is actually something i some of those other things i think you're outlining things that many of us have heard before and you're doing that in a really helpful way as this as i'm saying helpful guide but this last one i haven't heard about as much as much as you outline and that's the word securitization that mm. securitization has impacted. So I, even as we say that, you probably like that's not something that we're super. I mean, familiar I haven't with. heard right. that term. So what does securitization? <laughs> what does securitization mean, and how does it kind of play out in religious life and understanding? Um, this this was really um, partly launched by by a inspired by some work that I did with colleagues a few years ago on the way in which um, Islam and, and and Muslims were. Um, being conceived through state legislation in the UK as a security threat. And um, this is partly in response to 9-11 and the other the various terrorist attacks that were attributed to um, uh, extremist Muslim agents. Um, but what it did in the UK, and this is echoed in a variety of contexts across the world, is trigger... Um, a response at the policy level that um, conceived certain kinds of religion as much more suspicious than others mm. and led to um, a kind of uh, securitization of Muslims, mostly Muslims in this respect, mm -hmm. um, in everyday life. So that the the lives of institutions, whether they be universities or, or prisons or um, or schools, um, are affected by policies that seek to protect individuals. But what actually they do is that they stigmatize people who look different or who are different in religious terms as being, by definition, um, dangerous, more dangerous, or more likely to be dangerous mm -hmm. than other people. Um, and so I thought this was a really interesting aspect of neoliberal context, partly because um, it illustrates how if we are examining the way in which religion is shaped by its cultural environment in the 21st century, we're not just talking about religion being um, part of the kind of free market of ideas mm -hmm. that is all about things being liberated from previous expressions or liberated from previous traditions. Um, there's also an element of this that is about control yeah. Yeah. and about centralized state intervention, about legislation, about frameworks, about policy, about particular groups being labeled as um, not just problematic, but as, as, as by definition dangerous. Yeah. And it, like I say, it, it, it's a pattern you can see in counter-terrorist legislation that's, that's emerged across the Western world. But you also see it migrating into the ways in which certain um, minority groups are treated uh, in in other areas as mm. well. So Jehovah's Witnesses in 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 Russia is 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 a really fascinating example. Mm. The way in which that mm. that particular sectarian group, which has never been known for um, uh, 
subversion right. in a violent form um, is now conceived as uh, a um, uh, a dangerous um, sectarian group that deserves special measures by the state and has resulted in in all sorts of uh, uh, severe um, reactions on the part of the Russian state towards that community. So it's it, it emerges, securitization emerges not just as a way of um, legitimizing prejudice, hmm. but as a means of controlling religious difference on the part of uh, of the neoliberal state. It's it's uh, you know that section. It's it's so good, worthwhile reading, and uh, because it plays on people's fears and stuff too so much. Mm-hmm. Too, right, you identify whether it's this 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 immigrant community, like these others coming in, or this religious group, or this. And then, as I was reading that, I was thinking in terms of from some Christian perspective, so you're saying like Christian nationalist perspective or whatever, right-wing Christianity as expressed in the United States, um, like fundamental Christian faith as they would define it. Bonus, great, fantastic. Like, let's get back to the fundamentals. Uh, Fundamental or kind of radical Islam, dangerous, 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 right? That it's just this. And then all kinds of policy things, all kinds of ways of talking about these things in religious settings as well that impact our concept of those people of other faith, but also that impact our concept of who we are and what it means to hold, you know, a Christian faith where it's defined so much by this danger. It's in that section that you have this word that we spoke about briefly when we were talking before um, that I loved. It's even hard to say. I I think you coined this term from what you told me before, but uh, the word cosmeticization. Yeah, I uh, thought that was in the next chapter. Uh, is it not in the next chapter? Oh, one? maybe. Oh, you're right. It is in the next chapter. Okay, then we'll go to the... Okay, tell us what cosmeticization is, because we need to get that before we're done. Okay, okay. So co- so this is my my own uh, very clunky and, and, and uh, unattractive term. Um, but I thought I couldn't think of another one. I couldn't find another term for this. And I, what I was referring to was the ways in which particular kinds of religion, especially forms of Christianity foreground um, a kind of polished perfectionism um, as a way of measuring Mm. individual vitality or success or, you know, the way in which you say something is thriving. You say it looks like, and then the images of people that emerge from this resemble glossy advertising or they resemble the uh, um, the very polished ways of uh, people being physically embodied through uh, Hollywood uh, movies and that kind of thing. So cosmeticization is the celebration of the cosmetic over traditional yeah. depth or thought or interior life. Mm. Um, That's it's right, wearing cause... the right stuff. It's it's looking the right way. It's having the right kind of haircut. It's having the right kind of makeup. It's it's looking like you belong within this environment that's characterized by youth vigor and beauty you're so gracious and kind when you said about your own book i think that was in the next chapter (laughs) (laughs) yes you you are remembering that correctly um it is also where you're talking about like religion as entrepreneurial like yes yeah. and then that cosmeticization uh, cosmeticization is that how you yeah, say you're it gonna struggle with comes that. out but i love <laughs> the term i'm gonna play with it more um so as we kind of look towards winding up the conversation as allison was saying you don't you don't necessarily 
take a lot of like value statements on these things. You describe them. It's obvious that you're fascinated by them. But it's worth asking you now that we have you here and we're interviewing you. Like you're, you're not being polemic about it, it. Yeah. But what are some of the ways that you hope that knowing more about these things, the kinds of things you outline in your book, that just knowing this can help us moving forward in faith and religion? Well, one of the things that I, that, that I say in the final chapter, which, which does discuss sort of ethical issues, um, is that the changes associated with the neoliberal age, when it comes to religion, um, they have they expose such a strong set, a disturbing set of um, of patterns whereby power is used and abused. That mm. uh, it's impossible to describe all of this without at least inviting questions of morality. Um, because it's impossible to understand how religion and neoliberalism exist together without also observing how certain things empower some people and disempower others, advantage some and disadvantage mm. others, um, uh, enrich some and impoverish others. Yes. Um, and you can't, I don't think you can in good conscience simply observe that and say, hmm. that's the way it is, you know, that, that's that just the lives <laughs> we live in, you know. Um, you know, you, you have to say, okay, well, what are you going to do with that information? How are you mm -hmm. going to respond to that? Because that mirrors a profound inequality. And in some cases, um, religious um, adoption of neoliberal ideas uh, enables the inequality to become more heightened and more profound, uh, enables injustices to persist. There's a, a really profound question that emerges from that for me, which is, um, about kind of the ethics of cultural engagement. Um, you know, to what extent do religious organizations and those who, who are in conversation with them need to adopt a sort of critical perspective on how they use and take on cultural ideas? Mm. And part of that is, 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 is recognizing as, them as cultural ideas rather than as, yeah. as, as um, uh, universal truths, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and saying, actually, these these ideas come from a place, yeah. and we've adopted them for particular reasons at a particular time. They weren't always there. They they're not adopted by everyone. They're not universally valid. They you know they involve choices, and we can make other choices. And that's what gives me to circle back to your question. That's what gives me most hope is that all of these these uh, patterns, these 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 developments that I've that I've sought to chart are the result of human choices. Mm. And human choices can always go the other way. And so, you know, the history of humankind is not a history of inevitabilities. It's the history of choices. And some of them are bad and some of them are good. And if we recognize the bad ones, that means we're recognizing the potential for good ones in the future. Well mm. No, I, I think that's great because you're like what what you're describing, I think, Many people, like I, I grew up in in an evangelical church, reasonably conservative, um, and there was part where I I didn't know what wasn't like I, I didn't know what the presumed assumptions were. Like I I just it was it was just what life was, and it was only once I exited that culture that I actually had the perspective to go. That's weird. Um, I don't know that I like that. And it's, it's hard when you're in it to see it. And I think what your work does is, is help identify the, the ways in which you're like, 
well, this isn't necessarily in terms of Christian faith, like doctrine, this is just tradition or this is just social systems. And, and I think for, at least in my experience, there was a lot of blur in you, that. You didn't have a lot of people saying, this is the way we see it, but not everybody sees it that way. <laughs> it wasn't. No. Yeah. That, that wasn't my experience. Um, and, and I, yeah, I, I'm grateful for you saying that, yeah, these, this is human choice. We can choose differently. And, and I'm grateful for the work to help yeah. peel back some of, some of these presumptions, because I think, I mean, if I'm choosing to be charitable, which sometimes is difficult for me, um, there, there's a lot of people that are in these systems that they're ignorant. They're not, they're not choosing to try to exert power over people, but they don't necessarily see it. And I think your work can help like illuminate some of that and give people a chance to actually choose to be different. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. So you mentioned briefly, um, give you a chance to articulate more directly. What what gives you hope today? What makes you hopeful today? Maybe in the context of some of the things we're talking about, but it could be something else too. What makes me hopeful today? Yeah, I think um, what makes me hopeful is observing the, um, the profound humanity um, that uh, is still visible uh, amongst, um, amongst human beings who... Um, live their lives in with generosity and uh, and kindness um and who are and this is kind of in a way this is where I feel a little ambivalent about the whole post-truth thing because on the one hand hmm. empowering people to question authority is not necessarily a bad thing and if the post-truth phenomenon goes some way towards enabling individuals to ask critical questions about things they would otherwise take for granted, then that's a source of hope. As long as they think things through from that point on in an equally critical way. Um, And uh, I think there's, 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 there's definitely something to be hopeful about um, one way of taking that kind of skepticism. Um, And uh, I think that's, that's, that's worth, worth celebrating. That's so uh, it's a great way to end that even just the way you start that response, the profound humanity or profound sense of humanity mm-hmm. that you still see just in how some some engage with others, the kind of including reaching across some of these lines, right, mm-hmm. including um, some of the people that, you know, are so easily castigated one way or the other to see their humanity and the fact that yeah. this can still happen. So thank you so much yes. for joining us. I, we really do recommend this book. Um, it, for some, it would be really easy reading for others. It, you know, there's terms in there that people might not be familiar with and such. You can use Google if you need to. Yeah, it's, it's just, but it is really important to find and listen to these good guides who can help us ask these Mm -hmm. questions well, that, that are clearly doing so from a perspective of a bigger picture rather than trying to consolidate some kind of personal power or empire building or something like that. So, and that's very evident in your work. So thank you so much. We hope to connect more in the future. And when you come out this way again, we know you've done some work in Victoria, (laughs) Victoria. but we'll get you to Vancouver and uh, yeah. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Rector's Cupboard is a production of Reflector Project and is hosted and produced by Todd Weeb, Allison Williams, and Amanda Mina. Our cupboard master is Ken Bell. 
Rector's Cupboard is made possible by the generous support of donors. Check out rectorscupboard.ca for past episodes, events, and how you can help fund the podcast. You can also support Rector's Cupboard by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which helps other people find us. Thanks for listening.